Paul is a, an experienced entrepreneur, a physician, and a scientist specializing in bringing mission-driven health information technology ventures to market. He co-founded TrendMD, which is the largest native advertising platform for academic research that is transforming how scientific knowledge is disseminated and consumed. In 2019, after growing the company to profitability and 150 million unique visitors per month, Paul stepped down from his day-to-day -day role as CEO of TrendMD to lead the strategic vision of the company as an advisor. He also recently completed his PhD for uh, research that has advanced the fields of bibliometrics, knowledge dissemination, and scholarly communication from the Institute of Medical Sciences at the University of Toronto. And Paul is also currently completing his residency in psychiatry at uh, U of T. So again, thanks for uh, joining us this morning, Paul, or this afternoon, really. <laughs> Fantastic. So I, I thought we would uh, just kind of jump right in and basically kind of start with, um, you know, what, you know, if you could put it into your own words for the layman, um, you know, what is TrendMD? Uh, what does it do? And uh, how is it sort of, you know, advanced the field of uh, ability metrics from what was there before? So I'll, I'll kind of start off with um, giving kind of a simple analogy. So in, in a nutshell, what TrendMD does is we recommend content for academics to read. Um, so the best way to think about it is if you, you know, if you imagine if you're on CNN or New York Times and you're reading an article, you're often faced with the sponsored links at the bottom of the page. TrendMD does the exact same thing, but we do it for academic sources. So an academic source would be like a journal like JAMA or New England Journal. Um, so we work with these uh, journal providers uh, and we get, we get, get our product, our widget uh, embedded on, on the bottom of the page. So for a reader, for example, let's say you're a doctor and you happen to be reading an article about heart failure on JAMA, TrendMD is there right alongside the article presenting articles both from within that journal as well as sponsored content from around the web. So as a reader, you might see, again, an article from JAMA, but you also might see an article from another journal like DMJ or New England Journal uh, that's been sponsored. Uh, and the key thing is, is that we're presenting articles that are relevant to you and hopefully to enhance your practice. If I understood correctly, so the like the widget, the the application itself, it can fit into um, like it's not meant to be purely for academic journals. If I was to go on NCBI or something like that or PubMed, but it also fits onto uh, news uh, platforms yeah. as well. So so at first we were like, okay, we can find it, and and when I say HCP, I mean healthcare provider. Um, when we think about an HCP, I said, oh, you know, we're going to find them first on journals. But then along the way, we realized, well, doctors obviously are people too. They read news sources. They read <laughs> they, they read everything else that everyone else does. Um, so we ended up, you know, getting our widget installed on other places like Stat News or Medical News Today. And these are these are um, sites that kind of have a, um, a a medical focus, but but they're not academic in nature. And again, our technology allows uh, us to almost follow the the, the individual uh, HCP around, regardless of the site that they are on. And then we can recommend content that's relevant to them based on you know the data that we collect uh, on them. Right, that, that's really cool. Different than, than my initial impression, because I, I had a feeling that this was mostly geared toward um, if you're an academic or if you're taking part in academic type projects, and you, you're going to go looking for research, um, and then you're going to go on to one of these sites that are you know specifically designed to to display um, and run searches on academic literature. But you're saying like if, even if I went on to I don't know CBC CBC News and you know, just as an example, like I'll be able to find yeah. it in your health section or would it, would it just appear? The network itself is comprised of around 5,000 different websites. CBC is not one of the websites that are currently participating in the network. They might be in the future, but currently they don't. Um, but that would be an example. And if for people that go to CBC Health, it goes even one step further. 
um, for certain sites in our network that are participating, you won't even see the TrendMD widget unless you're a verified um, doctor that we've identified in the network. And so if you go to the page and you're not a doctor, you're not identified by us, you would actually see nothing. Um, mm -hmm. So, so the, the page is actually loading dynamically. And that actually is very common with advertising. We, you know, when it comes to advertising on the web, web pages are often dynamic and they're, and they're so-called personalized to the individual. Um, so TrendMD kind of fits into that ecosystem. So then you've got, you, you basically, you have, a, you know, a, a list of, um, I don't know if subscribers is the right word, but these are, these are HTTPs that you've already, I guess, spoken to or, you know, identified in advance. And then based on like uh, their, their uh, cookies uh, that got installed in their system, if they're browsing, is that the way to kind of target? Without getting too technical, the, the, the best way to think about it is it's a digital fingerprint. So every user on the internet, um, has a digital fingerprint associated with them. And what's a digital fingerprint? Well, it's basically, it's a bunch of different identifiers from your browser settings to your cookies. It's a, it's literally, as the name implies, um, it's a fingerprint. There's actually a project that was done out of MIT. I think this is pretty long ago. It's called panopticlick.org. Um, and it's a really nice tool because you can see your own digital fingerprint uh, using this tool. It's, a, it's an open source uh, project. Um, and um, so yeah, so and, and positions that are or HTTPs that are involved have opted in to allow this, so it's not so it's part of our uh, part of our system. And we've also partnered with third-party companies where the HTTP has opted in as well. So this is all kind of first-party data. Uh, all the the users have opted in. That's the best way to think about it. And you mentioned it's got something uh, around like five thousand uh, websites or services that are currently yeah, used. Currently, TrendMD is used by over five thousand different. Uh, websites. Okay. Um, many of those websites are journals. Some of those are not journal sites, uh, but it's kind of a mix. Um, and then overall, I don't know the numbers off because I'm kind of disconnected in some ways from the company, but I would say around 3.5 million uh, unique uh, wow. okay. individuals have been identified. So we can, we can actually target on that basis. But mm -hmm. in the network, just to give you a sense, so over the 5,000 websites, we're reaching over 100 million unique users per, uh, per month. And of those 100 million, we can actually identify specifically around 3.5. Can you tell anything just out of curiosity about different uh, specialists? Like who's, who's really using the, the service the most? Actually, what's interesting about the, that is that because TrendMD is embedded almost as a backbone, so to speak, of the, of the ecosystem, we're, we don't find, people don't actually come to TrendMD and say, hey, I'm going to use TrendMD. You would more, you know, if you ask a physician or you ask someone, they don't even know they're engaging with our product because they're just clicking on recommended articles, right? Mm -hmm. So, so in, in, I would say in most cases, there is a powered by TrendMD button at the, uh, or, or icon at the end of the widget, but in some cases it's not. Uh, it's really up to the publisher or the, or the website owner. So um, there aren't, I wouldn't say there are differences. Um, I would say overall though, we tend to reach, uh, obviously we kind of mirror the overall breakdown of, of positions in, in the universe, so to speak, which is, you know, we, we tend to reach most uh, GPs and then it kind of falls off. So it kind of matches the overall breakdown of, of uh, physicians uh, versus specialists. Gotcha. Okay. And I've definitely come across the, the icon too. And, uh, I, you know, before we had a chance to meet, I, I wasn't sure where that was coming from, but like now I know. So that's awesome. It's, yep. it's I've seen it quite a few times. Cool. Yep. Um, yeah. Okay. So maybe we can let's back up a, a little bit and just kind of go back to so the company has been around since about 2013, if I, uh, if I read that right. Yes. It was publicly launched in 2014, May of 2014. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. All right. So, so uh, about 2014, and um, 
uh, back then, I imagine that there probably have been a couple of changes in how research is done and bibliometrics and so on. Um, so, you know, going back to that mindset, you know, what was the initial sort of problem that, that you identified and, and uh, you mm-hmm. know, what, what, was, what was the need back then? So for me, so, so actually the, the idea or the underpinnings of the company actually date back to almost 2012. Um, I, I still remember it was April 2012. And for the time, I was a medical student, um, and I had just published my first paper. And I remember being extremely excited about, you know, getting published and, you know, all the work that I, you know, done, you know, all within payoff in this public journal. And I remember going up to my supervisor, and, uh, you know, he kind of looked at me a little bit dead-eyed, and he said, you know, you know, this is not really a big deal, Paul. You know, go back to work. If you want to make a name for yourself in academia, you really have to publish a lot. And, you know, instead of having kind of, yes, instead of having kind of the existential crisis, which may or may not have happened following that, I I turned some of that disappointment into something, um, you know, I I thought would be useful, which is, you know, I started thinking about this problem set, which is, why is it that, you know, as a researcher, you you pour hundreds of hours into a paper, um, only to be one of 8,000 papers that are released every single day? Okay, so, 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 so how do I get discovered as a researcher? Um, so that was one problem. The second problem was that, you know, how do you get, how, how as a researcher can I, um, uh, can I discover other relevant content? So those two problems I was wrangling with, and they were all kind of under the discoverability issue, which is that from a researcher perspective, how do I get a name for myself? How do I generate impact? And then from a reader perspective, how do I find things that are interesting to me? And uh, at the time, you know, I, I, I think I had posted something on, on AngelList, which was a very nascent uh, platform in 2012. It, I think it just had started. And um, uh, someone uh, in San Francisco, uh, who eventually became my you know, business partner and now one of my closest friends, reached out to me. Um, and, and, you know, we, we, we got to talking. And at first, he actually thought that I had a product and he, a product and he wanted to use it. And I told him, I'm like, his name is Alan. I was like, no, Alan, uh, I don't have a product. I have nothing to show for, but do you want to help me build it? Um, so that, that's some, that was kind of our, our first meeting. And, you know, we, we, uh, you know we, we developed a relationship from that. And about a year and a half after that initial meeting, he was the one that actually came up with the concept being um, suggesting Outbrain uh, for scholarly content. And for those that don't know, Outbrain is the, uh, is the main product that services the consumer web. So if you go to Outbrain, you, 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 you'd see, you know, content recommended for you. And that's the places that you see on, you know, CNN and things like that. Um, so we kind of merged our two brains together and we came up with a solution and then we launched the product in, in May of 2014. Okay. So May 2014 and, and you had just met Alan, which is a cool story. But a year and a half, um, a year and a half prior to that, I'd met Alan. A year and a half prior. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. um, so what, take me through like the the first couple of steps so one if you you know you, you decided it's an awesome idea clearly there was a need for it you're addressing a problem that a lot of people were having um trying to build a name for themselves and, and become recognized yep. in a particular fields so how do you how do you go through idea to taking the first couple of steps the first thing was was building a, a a prototype and you know um we were also very fortunate in the sense that one of the, we had we, we did have a third co-founder um who, who was not, he was not uh, very much involved in the later stages of the business, but very important in the earlier stages. Um, his name is Gunter Eisenbach. Um, and he is the owner of a group of journals that's known as JMIR Publications or JMIR Publications. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was not only um, a co-founder investor, but also our first customer. 
that we were able to beta test the initial product on. Um, so when we launched the product, um, it was pretty bare bones, pretty basic. Um, you know, as I say, this is a minimum viable product and we got it up on, you know, Gunther's journal. Um, and in Gunther's journals, uh, JMIR is pretty much, I would say, the top journal in health informatics. So it's a pretty well recognized, um, and e-health, very, very well recognized group of journals. In fact, about a month after, from what I recall, uh, maybe it was, it could have been two months. So this was in June of 2014. Um, we were con I was contacted by the British Medical Journal, so PMJ, which is probably one of the largest uh, medical journals out there, mm -hmm. um, asking if they could use our product. So it was right then, actually, that I actually took a leave, uh, leave of absence from residency at the time to then kind of pursue this because I knew that, you know, this is not just a one-off. This is something, this could be a, you know, real business. Because at first I was like, eh, this is, maybe this is just an academic project. Maybe it's not going to go anywhere. But it really, it, it kind of grew its own legs following that. Mm -hmm. it, it almost sounds like, so you had customers or potential customers, I guess, reaching out to you because they had heard something about it and they thought it was, they saw it. Clear. They saw, they saw it. it. They actually, okay. yeah, they, saw, they literally saw it on his journal. They said, what's that? And, you know, they saw the Powered oh. by Trend MD logo and, you know, they reached out. Um, so they literally saw it. And, and that's one of the benefits of the, of the business model. It kind of advertises itself, right? When you're, when it's being used, but the more it's being used, the more it's being seen, uh, yeah. the more likely, you know, someone will contact you, right? So and, free advertising. And when you've got people actually reaching out to you and, and asking, like, how do we get a hold of this rather than, I guess this is kind of the, the juxtaposition of um, having to, you know, as, as a startup, you might have to do a lot of heavy kind of marketing, advertising, a lot of business development to try to get your, your name and product out there. We, we, we did. You guys <laughs> yeah. do that too. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so I, I would say despite that initial success, you know, mm -hmm. starting a business is probably your viewers know and anyone knows is not easy and businesses don't sell themselves. Um, you know, you can have strong product to market fit, but that still doesn't mean the product is going to sell itself. So, so in the case of, of TrendMD, you know, at first I was the only salesperson, but we, we quickly grew that with, uh, and, and finding that we needed obviously insiders in the industry to sell this, uh, this product to other journal providers and, and publishers. So okay. it was certainly an active process, I would say, that was enhanced with, um, you know, marketing efforts essentially. Okay. Okay. Hmm. The, so, the, so this is kind of interesting. So you're, I'm just trying to think of, so your background, your background, you were, you were initially in medical school, this idea kind of popped up, yeah. you were publishing, getting into research. You, did you pause through yeah. the middle of medical school to build this? I've gotten used to wearing lots of different hats. Um, <laughs> so in, in 2012, uh, so I graduated medical school in 2013. Um, and then I started residency at the University of Toronto in 2013 in psychiatry. Um, and uh, I put that on pause um, uh -huh. when, I, you know, when I decided to pursue TrendMD. But it, technically, it was more of an academic pause. Um, okay. You know, it depends on who you ask. But so, so during my time, I, I took five years off. Um, I, we grew the company. So I was the CEO of the company. I grew the company to, to what it was. Uh, to run just over 80 employees. And also I completed my PhD during that time, um, which was in the area of bibliometrics and knowledge translation. Um, so different hats, researcher hat, business hat, medical hat. <laughs> it depends <laughs> on what I'm doing. <laughs> I don't know how you uh, managed to, to fill all those different roles. It's, it's pretty impressive, I, I got to say. Um, so I, I, at this point, okay, so you've got also 
Uh, I, I, I lack of focus sometimes, but, <laughs> but, but sure. Or creative genius or whatever we want to call it. It's, it's all good. <laughs> um, so you've got like, so you mentioned um, a two the, the the main, the key sort of team members that you were working with at the time. Um, it, you know, was this just, you know, a good personality fit? How did you kind of pick and choose the people to work with to start building this out, especially in the, the early, early phase? Do you mean my, between my co-founders or do you mean early employees? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, I suppose co-founders is, is the main sort of uh, starting yeah. point, right? So yeah. how, did, how did you guys so, decide who to work with? Yeah, so Alan and I, you know, have a very special relationship and I, and I feel immensely privileged to, you know, and I, to, to have been able to, you know, to have this in my life in the sense that we, and in, in many respects, it's, it's strange because we internet dated. <laughs> and I, have, I, I have a wife, but, but, but him and I, but he's my other, he's my other partner. And, um, you know, I, and I, and, and, you know, I didn't meet my wife on, on the internet. So, 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 but I met him on, on the internet. You tried both. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, we, we, we just, uh, you know, one of the ways that we've gotten along, I think, or one of the common threads between him and I is that when we do disagree about things, because disagreement is a natural uh, side effects, so to speak, of working together. It, it, it should always, it should happen. It's actually a good sign. It, it's how you solve the conflicts that, that you have between you. Um, and between Alan and I, you know, persistence was always something that was extremely important. And what I mean by that, if I unpack that, it's this um, persistence to discuss. We don't really bury things under the rug. If there's something bothering us, um, you know, we, we feel the need and we feel safe enough to discuss it. Um, because we knew that either one of us would, would, would be persistent enough to stick around in the relationship. Um, and, you know, that, I, if you want to generalize, I, I think that's actually one of the most important things uh, between co-founders. And, and I would argue that, you know, um, one of the reasons I think why early stage companies fail, and, and this is not just my argument, I've, I think I've read this a number of times, is between co-founder fighting, whether, you know, they don't, they don't get along or, and the business kind of dissolves uh, as a result of it. Um, so uh, I would attribute a lot of our success, frankly speaking, to the, that came to the relationship, the special relationship between uh, my co-founder and I. Um, so I'm not sure if that answers your question, but but um, but, but the, the, yeah, I think I think it does. I'll I'll kind of flip it around and see if I can ask it in a different way. Was there anybody that you started working with pretty earlier on that you know you realized? with you know relatively quickly that it just wasn't going to be a good fit they weren't going to be able to contribute in the way that you initially thought so there were absolutely employees that you know early stage employees that you know that came on that just weren't a good fit between alan and i um and i think that particularly with an early stage company again this is kind of a generalized advice is that it's really 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 important to be ruthless uh early on because if you're not um, you know, all of a sudden you'll wake up one morning and the company that you have is not the company anymore that you really wanted to create. So the mm -hmm. early, your early stage employees actually set the tone for the culture, uh, of your company. And again, a lot of this, a lot of what I'm saying is almost cliche at this point in the sense that, you, you know, you go on the internet, you read it anywhere. Um, <laughs> but, but I, I lived in and breathed it. It's very important to have a the company culture you want to cultivate. Really different experience. I imagine like kind of reading it versus, you know, you having intuitive oh, sure. versus experiencing it. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, absolutely. Okay, so I'll um, I'll, I'll kind of uh, I'll back up a little bit again too. So um, there are a couple of things I wanted to ask about uh, TrendMD itself. Um, one is the and I read a little bit about it, so I was really curious to to get your perspective on this idea of uh, collaborative filtering. And I don't know if that's the right keyword, but I, I, I suppose it's 
you know, what's the, what's the main sort of add-on here uh, and difference between uh, traditional sort of matching uh, to, to mm-hmm. people's preferences based on, I don't know, keywords or titles or author names, what have you, versus the unique aspect of TrendMD? So we'll start there. With many recommender systems, at least in academia, um, so for example, if you go to PubMed, um, most of the time when you see related articles on PubMed, they're based on semantics, based on the relatedness of, of keywords. Mm-hmm. Um, with TrendMD, we, we, we took a, a slightly different uh, perspective, wh- which is that we, and this is again coming from my co-founder's lens, who is more of someone that has done entrepreneurship in the consumer spaces in the world. Um, he looked at this and he said, you know, what are companies like Netflix and Amazon doing when they recommend, recommend movies or content to you? They're not actually necessarily looking at the relatedness of, of two objects, but they're looking at what people are actually doing. They're looking at user behavior, either, either individual user behavior, as, as in the case of Netflix, or more group behavior dynamics, as in the case of Amazon. So technically speaking, and collaborative filtering is a technical term, um, it describes Amazon's process, which is, you know, people like you have read this, you may like this. So it's trying to predict relationships in objects um, that are not just based on the relatedness of objects. So I'll give you a hard example of this. Um, so if we were using just plain old, uh, if Amazon, for example, were using plain old relatedness to generate recommendations, if you bought a tea bag, they just recommend five of the tea bags for you to buy. Now, obviously, to, to us right now, that's that's illogical, right? That doesn't make any sense. If I've just bought a tea bag, I don't need more. I don't need more tea bags. <laughs> but what Amazon learned is that it groups the behavior together. So people that buy tea bags often buy teapots next. Mm-hmm. So it generates that recommendation. So again, people like you have bought these items. You may like these items because you just bought a teapot or a tea bag. So in the case of, of, of academia, we kind of use the same logic to apply. So for example, if you've just read an article about lung cancer, we're not necessarily going to recommend five other identical review articles about lung cancer. We might recommend an article about smoking, or we might recommend an article about pancreatic cancer because there's some connection between the two, or people that have read about lung cancer have also read about pancreatic cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and it's really interesting because, you know, one of the things that we've learned along the way, and again, this is from a sales or business development perspective, is that when the publisher or the journal owner is looking at our, uh, you know, our, our, the quality of the recommendations, they look at it and they said, you know, uh, so-and-so at TrendMD, we don't think that your recommendations are high quality because you're recommending irrelevant stuff. <laughs> and, and then we say to them, we're like, well, no, it's what your users want. So if you look at, and the way that we measure the quality, so to speak, in our minds, is we look at the data. We look at the, the degree to which people see recommendations and the degree to which they actually click on recommendations, i.e. the click-through rate. Mm-hmm. Um, and our, our system is tuned to that, just like the system on Amazon or Netflix is in some ways are tuned to engagement or click-through rate. Um, so uh, it's always an education process, actually, because, uh, and in many cases, you know, the editor will say, no, 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 I, I want to I bias the system. I want to make it so it's showing more related articles. And when that does happen, you know, the quality, so to speak, as, as measured through engagement rates actually does tend to fall off a lot. So um, it's an interesting question you, you pose. We, we've often had to educate, I would say, a lot about this. You're right. I think there's a, there's a little bit of a disconnect between what you, you, you might think a system like this, how it would operate versus how um, it does. Versus how it actually does, right? I mean, if yeah. you're if you're going into uh, I don't know a grocery store or something like that, what do you find if you go down aisle six? Basically, like 500 versions of like you know whatever that main product is. So, um, it, rather than seeing a lot more of the same thing, you're you're kind of talking about going off and like pairing things up 
um, almost yeah. expecting what, what people might want to pair up with whatever that main product is. And, you know, that's a, that's a very interesting analogy if you're, if you're talking about like what happens in physical stores, because what happens in physical stores is more along the lines of what, uh, what relatedness does, right? So if you go down the aisle, so to speak, of tea bags, you're going to see other tea bags to buy. Right. Um, but I would argue that the context matters in this, in this, in this sense. So A, it's much easier to stock a store if everything, if all like items are, are together. Um, and also it's easier to navigate from a physical perspective because you're physically moving from one aisle to the next. Mm -hmm. The nice thing with digital is that you're not doing that. Um, you're not actually moving from one aisle to the next. You're just scrolling through a page. Um, but, uh, but, but, you know, it, it's interesting because, you know, we've run, we've obviously, you know, we've done all sorts of um, uh, empirical tests, so to speak, on, on, on whether or not relatedness drives engagement. And, and we find time and time again that no, Relatedness is not something that drives engagement, um, and I and I think for many people that is counterintuitive. But I'm, and I mean these these experiments have done are have been been done on us, you know, at Amazon and, and and Netflix for a long time, and you know they they figured out what what, what makes us click, what makes us stay engaged. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm gonna I'll ask one uh, kind of follow up on this point because I think it's it's just such an interesting point, um, and obviously. Netflix and a bunch of other services having so many different users, we kind of, we're at a point where I think most people understand how these things work, right? I mean, you, you do your checkout on, on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. yeah superficially yeah. anyways. Yeah. And then it always like, it'll figure out what, what other users have bought based on, you know, similar kind of initial requests and stuff like that. So, um, but I, I guess, uh, in the context of, you know, clinical research and, uh, or research in general, whatever the, whatever the field might be, mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the first impressions I had was, some of the greatest kind of inventions, I guess, if you will, or innovations have come from um, ideas being borrowed from other disciplines. And so if you're, if you keep seeing a lot of similar sort of content, does that, does that detract a yeah. little bit in the grand scheme? Yeah. Of so, so, so that's another really good point. Kind of the, 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 the relatedness bubble, uh, I like to call it. Um, so that's a big problem in research and many of the world's best, most important discoveries have, have come from what we considered to be interdisciplinary. I say, I underline the part we, is because disciplines are, are social constructs, they're not real, right? There's no such thing as physics, there's no such thing as chemistry, it's a human construct. Um, so these arbitrary divisions are made by us. Um, right, right. But the real world of science underneath that is actually doesn't really care about disciplines, <laughs> it's, all, it's all one. Um, so I think, you know, bringing it back to TrendMD, I think that we, in some, but not always, uh, foster serendipitous discovery. Um, because again, if we, if we were only relying on the relatedness input, then you would solely, you would truly never find articles outside of your said discipline or outside that are, uh, you know, directly related to, to your discipline by the keywords that are being used. So I think mm -hmm. that introdu introducing a layer of personalization and collaborative filtering actually does increase uh, serendipity. Can I test that hypothesis empirically? No. Uh, I can't, I, I mean, I don't, at least nothing off the top of my head that I, that I could think of that would test that hypothesis, but it's, it's in my intuition that I think that uh, we increase serendipity. Mm -hmm. I agree. That would be really tough to actually do in, in reality, but that's, I suppose that's what conferences are for, where you kind of bump into people sure. and bump into different, totally different ideas from different disciplines. Um, Absolutely. It, it's an interesting thought though, for sure. Um, yeah. Okay. So, so you also mentioned TrendMD is, is evidence-based in the sense that you guys have, have done a lot of studies. Um, uh, not all for marketing purposes, but it, it really is 
um, an algorithm and a tool that really does work. I wonder if you can kind of dive into some of the findings that you guys have yeah. done in comparative studies and so on. That was actually the, um, that was actually my PhD thesis. So, um, and that's what makes kind of Trendenby, I think, unique as a business in the sense that it is kind of an evidence-based tool. Um, of course, you know, I'm, I, I have a financial conflict of interest, which I, you know, disclosed my research, but notwithstanding, I mean, the, the research was produced. So we've done, um, I want to say we've published four papers uh, in this, in this area. Um, all, I won't talk about all four, but I'll talk about the last one, which was the most relevant one. Um, so the overall, I'll, I'll actually start here. The overall goal of my PhD was to examine to what extent, if at all, um, TrendMD as a cross-publisher recommendation tool uh, confers a benefit to visibility, uh, usage, or impact of articles. So visibility being we defined as an increase in page views or the usage, uh, usage we defined a different way. And then ultimately the question really was, was that if we're promoting articles in the TrendMD network, does this actually lead to a citation benefit or a citation increase of those articles that are promoted? And in short, the answer is yes, at least in some disciplines it does. Um, so most recently, in the in June of 2019, we we, we published a paper um, showing it was a, a randomized control trial, um, including I believe 3,200 articles. 1,600 were promoted uh, in the network. 1,600 were control, and this was done across eight disciplines. So it wasn't just uh, in, in in the health sciences or medicine. It was actually in chemistry. It was in all different uh, disciplines, even business, social sciences, humanities, and we found that overall. After six months of promotion, we measured a citation benefit both at six months and at 12 months. So there was actually an overall 50% increase in citations uh, conferred to the articles that were promoted after 12 months. Um, then when we looked at the actual disciplines that found this benefit, it wasn't all of them. We found a benefit in, in health sciences, life sciences, as well as physics, actually, so, so um, uh, non-life science. But we didn't find a citation benefit in, in, uh, in the other disciplines like business or, or humanities. Um, that being said, we did find a usage benefit in, all, in seven of the eight disciplines in study. And we think, I, at least I think, that for, for disciplines that didn't see a citation benefit at 12 months, I think that when we examine them at 24 and 36 months, which we are planning on doing, I think that we will see citation benefits. Meaning the reason why we didn't see it at 12 months is because the publication cycles in these other areas are slow. Uh, medicine, physics is very rapid, and therefore you, you, you tend to see the citations accrue more rapidly on articles. So, so we'll see. Uh, we're doing another study. We're doing a re-examination of the data uh, probably next year. I'm super curious about this kind of thing because was this when you went to do your your PhD was this um, a direct kind of result of sort of a need to incorporate these ideas into into TrendMD or was that did the two kind of intersect just naturally? They so it was intentional in the sense that I mean one has to have intent when they're doing their PhD so so I did intend to do a PhD. Um, so, so in answer to your question, yes, it was, it was certainly intentional. Um, uh, yeah, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but it was definitely very intentional to do the research. Right, right. I'm, uh, again, like I, I, like you were saying, you, you've worn so many different hats, and uh, and you're definitely you've taken on so many different roles within the, the company. It really is impressive. Um, within, uh, so I, one of the things that I was really interested in uh, trying to understand is um, the. You, so you mentioned a couple of the different uh, disciplines that you found um, significant results in. Um, mm -hmm. Was there any 
difference in terms of, um, I, I guess, I don't know what the right word would be, but the real world type, you know, uh, research that, that is directly translational into real practice versus more mm -hmm. theoretical type work? Is that different? Yeah, that's a good question. So, so we can't really, you know, um, our primary outcome that we measured was citations. Citations is a measure of one type of academic impact. Um, it happens to be the most popular way of measuring academic impact because it's easy to measure. Um, it's objective, um, meaning, you know, two people viewing this impact can agree that, you know, this, this said article has five citations. Although even that, sometimes there's, there's differences in, depending on where the citations are coming from. Um, but there, there, other than the citations, there are less objective ways to measure impact of, of articles. So you mentioned one. Uh, you mentioned, you know, how does this said article have an impact on clinical practice? It's really important, obviously, especially it's really important for physicians. But the question is, is how do you actually measure that? How do you measure clinical impact of a paper? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do that objectively. Um, you know, there, there could be somewhat, you know, pseudo objective uh, ways of doing it where, you know, you, you, you get a survey and you ask a group of physicians, um, you know, is this, is, was this article impactful on your practice? And you can do all sorts of fancy statistical tests by getting reliability in, in that. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and I say this because, you know, there are fields in medicine like psychiatry, like my field, that operates without objectivity in the sense that we, our diseases, our syndromes uh, are based on, they're driven by consensus rather than lab work. Um, you know, but it's still reliable because we've come up with a consensus of what depression means or what schizophrenia means. So bringing this back to TrendMD, you could create uh, a clinical impact score, I suppose, and ask a bunch of physicians whether or not these said papers are impactful. Um, you could do something the same thing. We just that, that's a much much more uh, ambitious thing to do than measuring citations of articles. Right, right, right. Okay, we'll definitely come back on uh, on the topic of how to incorporate some of these ideas in, into into your field in psychiatry um, and what you hope to accomplish in the field as well. Um, but just coming back to uh, the uh, trend in deep. Um, for a second here. So mm -hmm. in your capacity as an advisor at the moment um, and, as, and as past CEO, um, mm -hmm. has the, the, the mission, the vision of the company changed based on based on the, the evidence that's come out from how effective it is? What do you see for the No, uh, you know, one of the things that's remained, although like our, our strategies have obviously changed year to year and, and the roadmap changes year to year, we always had, we always knew what the top of the mountain was, meaning you know, our overall mission at TrendMD was always the same, which was to accelerate the rate at which humanity's knowledge advances. Sounds like a lofty vision. Uh, and I think businesses kind of need to have a lofty vision in order to survive. Um, now, the way that we execute against that mission is, is, again, that's a different topic. That's strategy. And strategy changes from year to year. It changes from month to month. Um, but the overall mission never changed. We, you know, literally, I can remember from the day we launched, Although we may have not said it in those words that I just used, we kind of all knew that we wanted to enhance discoverability, speed up, speed up the, the rate at which innovation occurs. These are all kind of synonymous with our overall mission. Um, so, so, so no, that, that, that didn't change throughout the journey. Since, since um, inception, I'll say even before, like pre-official launch, up to where it is right now, um, what have been some of the key kind of success factors, key drivers of success in the company? Well, one of them I, I, I had mentioned before, I think that um, if you wanted to distill everything off, I think one of the most important factors as to why we were successful um, was because, you know, my relationship with my co-founder, with, 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 with Alan, I think that, um, you know, in the absence of that, 
Um, I think that would have been what I find. Mean, I think the company would have failed, uh, but I think many companies would fail when, when there's founder infighting. Um, so I think that, you know, not having that, the absence of that, a really good relationship is one of the reasons why we succeeded. Um, I think another factor uh, is, and again, this goes back to what I was mentioning before about uh, my co-founder, but persistence. Um, so we, we knew that our mission was valid, so to speak. Um, the question was what strategies were, what, what battle strategies did we need to get to that mission, to execute on the mission? That's the stuff that changed, but we knew that we had to be persistent, right? Um, the most important thing in, in startup, the other important thing I should say is being, I, I often say, be a cockroach, um, so survive. If you survive long enough, you'll figure it out. If you don't survive because you run out of money or you know, you're having founder infighting or whatever, well, well you're obviously not gonna be able to, to execute against your mission. So find ways to survive, be resilient, be scrappy. These are all things that I think that were, you know, that I, I certainly have, my co-founder has, and we kind of brought this into the culture of Trend Okay. Okay. Um, again, a lot of this stuff is um, sort of the, the, the kind of things that you read about when you sure. go into like whatever blogs or what have you on like culture. Yeah. Totally different experience actually going through and, and living them. And so being able to really be super in tune with how important each one of these things is makes it makes yeah. a big difference. Um, yeah. for, for the work that you want to do going forward and, and being able to share that too. Um, one of the things I, I was really curious about too is the, what do you see um, in terms of uh, diversity in, in your customer base or, or in the, the product um, ranges that you guys have right now? Maybe it's, it's one main product that's servicing a lot of different clients. What do you guys it, see going forward? In that? Our core value proposition at the end of the day is that we, you know, for, for advertisers, so to speak, for, 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 for people that want to promote their content, they can do so. So the widget allows them to do that. And on the other side, you have readers that are discovering interesting content. Um, the way that I kind of frame what Trinity does, um, ultimately, we're just a marketplace of attention. That's it. <laughs> that, 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 when you boil everything off, you, you, know, you have advertisers that want to reach an engaged audience, and you have readers who want to discover interesting content. And what Trinity is, it kind of sits in the middle as a broker. Um, to facilitate that transaction between you know people that you don't want to read reach read, read stuff and people that want to reach people, um, so it, it's all one product. Um, it's all one value proposition. Would you uh, differentiate in any way between um, let's say a researcher that's just starting out um, uh, and or maybe another uh, interesting or unique example might be somebody that's doing a lot of kind of heavy publishing in an open access journal. Are there any, is there any different kind of applications there or any way to differentiate? No, not necessarily. I, I would argue that early stage researchers have an even more impetus to, to promote their work because they have to make a name for themselves. Um, similarly, people that are publishing in open access, I mean, one of the reasons why open access publishing took off as much as it did um, was because authors, particularly authors, wanted to have control over the degree to which their, their work, their hard work is visible to others. Um, if you go pre-2000, you know, into the 1990s before open access really took off, who saw your work really depended on who could pay uh, the, for, for journal subscriptions, which was right. a ridiculous notion. Now, I don't think that open access has solved all of that, um, because I also don't necessarily think that the onus to, is, should be all placed on the authors to pay to publish their work, but that's a whole different topic. Um, but, but again, the emphasis of open access is increasing the visibility of your work. What Trendy does is, is kind of an add-on where not only is your work open because we encourage that and we want we, we, we want work to be open, but we 
at TrendMD is uh, set up to, to actually disseminate and, and distribute your work actively to people that can make use of it. Um, mm -hmm. So open access and TrendMD are, are friends, so to speak. We, we, we're, we're two products that go hand in hand. Okay. That's positive. All right, good to hear. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, okay, let, let's um, we'll go a little bit into uh, your specialty, um, psychiatry. And I wonder if you can uh, tell us a little bit about, um, I, I guess, how, how you got into psychiatry. Was this always one of your preferred specialties, um, especially with the, the break that you took in, in developing this, um, this mm -hmm. company? So psychiatry for me, um, what really got me intrigued in the field uh, was the research aspect. So I was always really into research. Um, I'm the type of person that likes, so when you, when, I'll say this, when you think about physicians in general, physicians kind of fit into buckets. There are some doctors that really like the, the technical path, and you can think of surgeons, you can think of certain doctors that like very concrete uh, answers to things. Uh, or in other words, they're not very tolerant of ambiguity. Um, and there are a lot of specialties for that. So, um, you know, surgery in general is a very concrete, um, you know, field where you're physically working with your hands and your brain. Um, and there are other fields like cardiology, where we really do understand, at least superficially, again, how the heart works, how it pumps, or the kidney, how the kidney, you know, filters the blood. But then you enter the brain and all of a sudden things become very, very opaque. Um, we understand some aspects of the brain uh, better than we did, let's say, 50 years ago, when we think about how the, how, how, how the brain sends signals to, to how our muscles move. But in my mind, human behavior and psychiatry is truly the final fr frontier. Um, and we haven't really even scratched the surface yet because, you know, we haven't defined even the most basic problems that are actually extremely complex, like, you know, what is consciousness? Why, why am I conscious? Why is this rock not conscious? These questions are actually not answered yet. Um, so I think the unknown really attracted me um, in the same way that the unknown attracted me to entrepreneurship. Um, I like to kind of be in the basement, seeing around, seeing around the dark, trying to feel my way uh, through things. I think psychiatry has that appeal. Um, and um, you, know, you have the potential to, 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 to do a lot of uh, good things in psychiatry because the field is so kind of at its beginning stages. I often say, and I think I've read this before, is that you know psychiatry is where you know cardiology was 300 years ago. Um, we're still very much in the dark. We really don't understand the way things work. Um, and although we've made immense progress in the field of psychiatry, when the you know in the fields of psychopharmacology and and so and, and some of our treatments, there's still so much left to do. Um, and I think that 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 frontier aspect, that that um, that aspect, really attracted me to the field. So again, it was a very intentional choice uh, picking a, a, a specialty like this. So it sounds like you definitely want to have an impact in a psychiatry yourself. Is there is there a particular area that you want to focus in? Maybe. <laughs> so 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 I don't that that I don't know. I think right now, you know, I I'm kind of heads down, I'm going to complete my residency, uh, which is about a year, year and a half remaining, and then following that, I, you know, I I there there aren't any. I'm I'm kind of interested in general psychiatry. I'm still kind of exploring. Uh, I I wouldn't say I I have a definitive path. And I think that regardless of, of what I do, I think psychiatry will be probably part of my career. It won't be it won't be my career in general. Um, you know, I'm 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 I, I'm interested in all all sorts of things. I'm still very interested in entrepreneurship. I've gotten as of late interested in in in, in angel investing and also also venture funds. Um, and this is something I think that I hope to incorporate into my future career. So again, this is working with my previous co-founder in this regard as well. So, so I think that my career is still uh, developing. Uh, I'm still determining where I go next. 
And do you see yourself staying on as an advisor to a trend MD? Yes. 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 Absolutely. Okay. So, so that, so absolutely, I see myself staying on as an advisor for trend MD. Um, so there are some knowns, <laughs> I, I would say. So that is certainly a known. Uh, I would say another known is that I will do at least some clinical work, um, whether I'm working in the emergency department, in emergency psychiatry, or chronic care. That I don't know, but but I, I the the question is is what does my split look like? Do I spend 25% of my time doing that? 25% of my time doing angel investing? Don't know. This is this that's the stuff. Uh, the devil's in the details for that. I would say. So you're gonna keep wearing like four or five different hats, basically going forward. Yeah, that is something I like to do. It's <laughs> it's not necessarily my ADD, although it could be. Who knows? But uh, I like to I like to um, I, I like to do different things. <laughs> I like it. I, I think I'm the Oh, that's awesome. Uh, I think I'm the same way in, uh, uh, in that respect. Um, so, so this kind of gets into an interesting uh, uh, part of the conversation here because now I'm, I'm thinking back to um, this this really diverse background that you have, this non-traditional path that you've taken. Um, mm-hmm. And and I guess I'm wondering, I, I, you know, you probably met, you probably have a lot of classmates, a lot of uh, friends and, and colleagues that um, that are maybe thinking about these sort of things, but um, they're not quite sure how to get started, um, or if it's even for them. So, how how do you, how, what would you say to other people that are, let's say, in medicine or um, going through residency mm-hmm. or anything like that, and have this sort of itch to do something in the entrepreneurship world? Yeah. So, I think the the important thing here, um, if you're curious, follow your curiosity. I mean, uh, that's the best thing I can say <laughs> is that um, you know try to live. And this is my own philosophy. Uh, I try to live in a way that will mitigate future regret, for better or for worse. Um, so, and obviously, we, you know, I, I would say we're not all. I don't think I'm. I have a perfect crystal ball into knowing what I will regret and what I won't regret. But I'm, I do the best I can. So, if if you know, if you're a, a young person that you know just started medical school and you're not sure if this is for you or if you want to, get, you know, test the waters in something else, do it. You know, you're you're the only person that are holding yourself back. Um, and I think the worst thing that can happen in life, this is, again, this is my philosophy, not, not for everyone, but my philosophy is that I don't want to wake up when I'm, you know, 60 and say, I missed out on this opportunity. Why didn't I just do this? Um, you know, and, and certainly when I jumped ship, so to speak, um, when I started TrendMD, um, that was certainly going through my head because there were a lot of people in, in my life that were saying, no, you, you, ha- you have to complete residency, you know, do, do, do your thing first and then you can come back to this later. Um, I didn't listen to those people. And I think that, um, you know, in life, you'll get a lot of advice and you have to pick and choose what's going to work for you. For me, living without regrets was, was kind of my um, uh, MO, so to speak, or driving force. Do you find that your experience uh, going through the, the entrepreneur journey, I don't even want to call it that, I would say, you know, founding and, and running TrendMD, Mm-hmm. Did that have an impact in, in your um, perspective, I guess, as a clinician? I think it did. I think it has, um, especially coming back to residency from doing something else. I mean, most people, I mean, 99.9% of residents, actually 100% of the people in my class didn't do what I did. Is my way better? No, it's just my way. Um, and I do think it has given me a different perspective, both in terms of how the, the, the quote, real world works outside of medicine. Um, you know, how business works, uh, how entrepreneurship works. And I think that what's interesting is, is, is um, you know, with medicine, I would say there are a lot of things I think that medicine can learn from entrepreneurship. 
um, and some things they can't. So medicine, you can't take risks because if you take risks in medicine or too many risks in medicine, uh, people get hurt. Um, in entrepreneurship, the lens is different. You need to, as I don't know who coined this first, probably Mark Zuckerberg, you know, move fast, break things. You, 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 can't, you can't do that in clinical medicine, or at least you can't do that to the fullest extent. And in fact, when entrepreneurship tries to do this, we get things like Theranos, right? So we know what happened with Theranos. Right. It was fraud and, you know, there's fraud in, in the startup ecosystem, but when Theranos did it, you know, people actually were hurt. Um, so I think there are things to learn and, I, and I've kind of taken, I, I think I've taken some learnings from, uh, from, from entrepreneurship in, in terms of how I view, you know, new clinical treatments or, 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 or what new clinical treatments to try, for example, given the risk ratio. Um, but, uh, but certainly it's given me, I think I'd like to think it's given me a different perspective because I've had a different journey than, than mm-hmm. most doctors. We often learn from just doing something completely different and bringing that into our, our everyday. And then all of a sudden it, it changes the lens, everything um, yep. can even go upside down. Um, Absolutely. So, so Paul, ha- have there been any, um, any setbacks or kind of major challenges that uh, you had to, to overcome? Has, and there, have there been any kind of key learnings from that that you can pass on others? Um, you know, I, I, I've been thankfully very fortunate <laughs> in, in that, like, I mean, of course there were setbacks along the way. There were many times that we nearly ran out of money. Um, many, many times, many times that we thought the product was going to fail, the business was going to go bankrupt. Um, this goes back to a point and I hate to, to kind of, to, to be a broken record, but, um, resilience and persistence in the face of adversity is pretty much the most important thing you can have. I don't know if that's a thing for start. And, and, and I would actually generalize that. I don't, I think in, in, in life, um, if you're not brushing up against boundaries, you're probably not pushing yourself to your max anyways. So adversity is a natural byproduct of success. Um, if you don't encounter adversity in life, then you're not doing, you're doing something wrong. So you, in life, you actually, and it's funny, one of the things I look for, I don't, I don't shy away from adversity. Um, I'm, I, don't, I don't know if I look for it per se, but um, I find it. <laughs> and if you find it, don't back down uh, from that, you know, that dog fight, so to speak. You know, keep going. Um, and if you fail, you fail because, you know, and my attitude is if you fail, you'll probably learn something from it anyways. Um, so who cares? Just keep going. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, brush, brush off your shoulder and just get up. Um, that's kind of been my, my MO. So I, I don't have a specific, you know, this thing happened that was really bad and I learned this. It's more of like the chronic uh, exposure, so to speak, of things not going the way that they were probably initially intended to go, but that's okay because you learned a different way that's probably more effective. Anyway. Did you ever get kind of desensitized to it? Or, you know, is it something you just have to deal with? in life you do get you know I, and, and there's an old adage in life i'm sure you you know everyone knows this is that whatever doesn't kill you only makes you stronger that's basically what i'm saying um is chronic exposure to stress naturally lead you to down no actually so 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 this is me putting down my psychiatric lens uh on this is that no for certain individuals chronic exposure to something like this adversity might actually hurt uh and i think there's a there there's a Everyone is different, um, you know, and I don't, I don't think, I don't think there's a, um, I don't think there's one common thread, but for me at least, adversity seems to help me go further as opposed to harm me. But then again, maybe I haven't exposed to the ultimate adverse stressor, and hence I started this, 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 uh, your question by answering and saying that I've been very fortunate in life, I've had privileges, 
Um, and um, maybe that's why I, I'm able to speak from this position of privilege and say, well, adversity is helpful. For some people, it's not. Um, you know, so, so it depends. Gotcha, That's gotcha. kind of my, my medical slash entrepreneurship uh, <laughs> way noticed. of answering a question. Yeah. It's a perfect melding of the two. Um, <laughs> all right. So I'm thinking uh, I'll ask uh, maybe one final question and then uh, sure. uh, I'd love to, you know, if you have any kind of closing thoughts, I'd love to, to hear from you as well um, before we wrap up. So um, you are a, um, you, you got your family started as you were going through residency or is this while you were still running TrendMD? Uh, so you, when, like, like you're like married, my partner, do you mean, or when you say family, I I suppose, you know, family life, whatever, whatever that might mean to you. (laughs) Uh, yeah. So I had, uh, um, uh, my wife and I had welcomed a child, uh, last year, uh, around the time. So July of 2019, she's now, uh, just over 13 months. Um, it's crazy. That's a crazy different experience. Um, it's been absolutely amazing, humbling to be a father, uh yeah no, it's been an amazing journey so yeah so so technically the way it worked is that i finished so i stepped down from trend md uh in uh i guess it was around february or march 2019 so my wife was already pregnant at the time um and uh yeah and then in july we welcomed our, our firstborn and then um in november i went back to residency uh to complete and i say just before november i also defended my phd thesis in october of uh, 2019, I defended my PhD thesis. So it was kind of last year was kind of intense. There was a lot of new things that I that that, that happened in life. Uh, but yeah, it made for a great uh, great year. Jeez, yeah, no, Politi, uh, congrats on uh, on starting the family. Um, Thank you. The real kind of final question here is, you know, there um, there are people that are you know, thinking about you know creating companies or what have you at different stages in their life. Is you know, would you say is really important to to find people to kind of support you and, and especially those in your immediate circle, your, your close friends, your yeah. family, was that an important part? Absolutely. So, so uh, for me, family, friends, um, you need to find people because there, as I'm going back to that question you asked me just a moment ago about adversity uh, or the way I answered it was about adversity. I think you need support in life to be able to deal with that adversity. Um, I wouldn't have been able to do it alone, whether it, again, whether it is your business partner, your, your, your romantic partner or whomever, your family, I think you need someone or, 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 or people, groups of people to, to, to rely that, uh, to rely on to, in order to get you to those, those darker periods. Mm-hmm. So Paul, that, that's pretty much from, uh, everything from my end. Um, if you've got any kind of final thoughts, I'd love to, to hear from that. Um, otherwise it's been, it's been fantastic having you on and, uh, look forward to, to hearing more great things coming from your way. Great. Thanks. Well, thank you again for uh, uh, for inviting me to your to your podcast. It was uh, it was gr- a great experience, and uh, thanks for listening to me for the last hour. So, thank you. <laughs>